Welcome everyone to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. I'm Ann Geisinger, Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, and today I am going to continue to highlight the award winners from our recent EB Awards, celebrated on June 8th in Boston. So I'll start this episode off with some introductions of our fan club. We have a little fan club here of our award winner. So Harrison Rokes is an environmental engineer and a senior project manager at Sanborn Head. He's a statistics whiz and spends his time in soil and groundwater investigations. He's also an avid bird watcher. And he said that his favorite thing right now or in general is finding peregrine falcons, watching them in and around Manchester, New Hampshire, which is pretty cool. And we also have Harry Stewart. He's a senior associate at Normando Associates, where he focuses on permitting, compliance assistance, strategic consulting on, you know, all the various projects that they're doing. But don't confuse Harry with your run-of-the-mill consultant, because he's not. He spent over 30 years at the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services, and his last 16 years there, he was director of the DES Water Division. So he's he's not run-of-the-mill by any means. Harry plays soccer every Sunday morning. Good for him. With the over 63s group, and I wish his team well because I've heard through the grapevine that they're not having the best of seasons. So, you know, maybe with the changing of the the weather, it'll get better. (laughs) So, Harrison and Harry, welcome. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. So, I will now introduce our award winner and the reason for this episode. Chip Corsetti is a senior vice president and principal hydrogeologist with Sanborn Head and Associates. 30 years ago, Chip was one of the founding principals at the firm, and he's served as shareholder secretary ever since. His work has focused on hydrogeology, geochemistry, evaluation of contaminant, fate, and transport, remediation of hazardous waste sites, and environmental forensics. Chip is a coach. He's a mentor. His enthusiasm and talent for shepherding staff has contributed enormously to his firm and to everybody around him. And I really want to thank Chip personally for his commitment to EBC. It's been probably decades now, um, that he's been an active member and he's been vice chair of our New Hampshire chapter and just given really generously with his time uh, to EBC as an organization. I really appreciate that. So congratulations to Chip on receiving EBC's Stephen G. Lewis Merit Award for service to the environmental industry. A round of applause for Chip. (laughs) Thank you, Anne. I really appreciate it. Well, it's really, really nice to be able to award you because really you've given so much to EBC. It's nice that we can give something back to you. So I'm just going to kick it off with somewhat of a easy question, I should say. Um, you know, back when Sanborn Head was founded 30 years ago, what was the industry like at that time? What was your place in it? How did you how did you see the industry growing from there? If you had some predictions at the time, uh, it was 1993, and uh, there was just you know the four of us starting out. But the landscape, I think, is a lot different than it is now. I think there were more uh, sort of small to mid-sized environmental firms in New England. Some of, I guess, I'll say the old-time geotech firms like uh, GZA, who, was, who we all formerly worked for, uh, GEI, Haley and Aldrich were still, um, you know, pretty big players locally. Um, but there were a lot of uh, smaller niche environmental firms. Frankly, a lot of them don't exist anymore. And a lot of the, the sort of bigger, I guess I'll call the megatech firms, weren't quite as big and, and maybe uh, quite as, as common in New England. Also, too, back 30 years ago, it was largely, hate to say, but all white males. And certainly uh, since then, the environmental uh, industry, the professions, professionals involved, it's much more diverse now. And I think uh, we're all much better off for it. And uh, so things have changed quite a bit, yes. Well, certainly. And what 
what were you saying? What would you say you would be focusing on at that time? Was it all sort of, you know, geotech work then primarily, or were you starting to branch out into other stuff? What were your, what were you guys focusing on? Well, good question. When we first started, we really focused on uh, contamination, contaminated sites, uh, largely in New Hampshire, and uh, and also uh, solid waste. Early on, we had work from uh, a couple of the major players in solid waste in New England. So those were really uh, our first projects. One of our first big contaminated site projects was actually in Ohio. And that was always a question. We'd go out to Ohio, a company of you know four, five, six people, half the company would go out there to work on a project and everyone would say, well, why did this small company from New Hampshire come out to Ohio? And that uh, was kind of a long story, but, uh, but we had a relationship with the Timken company and we still do. And uh, they decided when we left uh, GZA to continue working with us. And a lot of their properties were in Ohio. So that so really helped us out the first year or two uh, to get started. That's great. And Harry, you know, back then you were at DES. What was the landscape like for you at DES at the time? Very different probably then than it is now in terms of what kind of regulatory environment you were in. Well, it was a lot smaller organization than it, than it is now. In the uh, realm that uh, Chip just described, you know, groundwater contamination and remediation and whatnot, the whole industry was really in its infancy at that time. So we were all pretty much on both sides, making it up as we went along to try to figure out these sites and how to get them remediated and how to deal with the contamination and, and the investigations, which is what Chip's expertise was. And in fact, I remember, um, I think it was 1995, Chip uh, and his folks, they were only three years into their company and they came in on this major uh, project for BD Waste Oil. And um, one came in for the interview with three or four other firms. And, you know, Chip walked into this interview. He, unlike anybody else, he had solved the problem uh, before he put any groundwater monitoring wells in other than what was already there. He came and he totally described the site. Uh, and that description has stuck to this day. I think Sanborn Head is still on contract uh, to DS to work on the BD waste oil site, which is now, a, it wasn't a super fun site at the time, but it, um, we, we were moving it in that direction. And that was one of our goals. And, and you fast forward 30 years later, and we are uh, partners on a, 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 a contract with the Manchester airport. And uh, with regard to PFAS, uh, Chip came in with the same approach and explained the whole problem with regard to PFAS to the airport and helped us uh, be successful. And his model has stuck. It's, it's exactly right. So Chip hasn't changed over 30 years, I guess. <laughs> he was brilliant then and he's brilliant now. He clearly, he looks exactly the same too. Hasn't aged a bit. <laughs> the, the other thing, I don't mean to dominate, but um, oh, that occurred to me was that there was no professional geologist uh, program uh, in New Hampshire and uh, Chip and John Regan from DES were instrumental in getting that going. Um, the, they used to complain about how you had to have a PE to sign, stamp this or that uh, report. And um, so we, I honestly, I kind of sat down with them and said, well, you know, stop whining and go get a PG program. And, and that's what they did. They went out and got legislatures to um, advocate uh, and developed a law and got the professional geologist program going back then. That's really cool. I didn't know that, Chip. Do you, do you have any, like, how did that, 
you know, clearly that's how that happened. You were told by Harry to just make this happen. But, you know, how did that come about for you and John? I mean, did you have to go to the legislature, it sounds like? Well, yeah, good, good question. Um, actually, Paul Sanborn was, was really involved with that as well. And uh, uh, funny story, you know, in handing out the PG numbers, there was a big competition for two of them, 001. And I forget who got that. And then 007, plus the below seven. <laughs> of course. And if you were, you know, a, a young man of the 50s or 60s, you know, that was the coolest number to have. And I think that's the one Paul got. I, I got 006. So, you know, but um, actually, and that was, uh, that was an, I had sort of forgotten about that. But uh, that was definitely a, a big uh, uh, movement, I guess you'd say, in, in the mid to late 90s. And we had help from actually, uh, Greg Smith, McLean Law Firm. He was, I think, right. formerly Attorney General or Assistant Attorney General. And he was also very, uh, I think he really helped on sort of the, the legislative and legal side of things. And uh, I think in the end, it was, you know, pretty well accepted. You know, there were a few maybe engineers that were begrudgingly sort of gonna give up some ground to the geologists. But, um, but I think in the end, uh, it was better for everyone. And since then, there's been quite a few more states that have. Uh, got PGs now, and uh, it's still not as universal uh, as PEs across the country, but uh, but growing, and uh, probably about 30 out of the 50 states, I think, have PG registrations at this point. That's very cool. So just to transition briefly, so Harrison works with Chip at Sanborn Head and um, has probably some experience with Chip as a mentor a little bit, uh, as a coach internally. Um, Harrison, do you have any reflections on that? Oh yeah, I mean, I've have had the pleasure to work with Chip on on many different projects, and some of them has already been mentioned, like BD Waste Oil. Uh, did some of the office work on that project as well as getting out into the field a fair amount, and working with Chip's always pretty amazing. Because like Harry was saying, with the conceptual model of you know just being able to really frame an issue and include a lot of the complexities, but also boil it down into something that you can actually communicate to other people is, is pretty amazing. And, you know, go, you go in with a geochemistry question or something like that. And it just like rattles off, you know, it's this and this and this and that. Oh, well, that, you know, that mineral is more soluble. That one's less, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's been amazing pleasure to, to learn a lot from Chip and, the degree to which he's you know so ready to just sit down and, and talk through things and do it in a way that's you know really approachable uh is just something that i think a lot of people can can kind of learn from and, and want to emulate right it's uh when when someone can can feel so approachable but also be such a, such a wealth of knowledge that's that's pretty cool and i think um you know you always want to have good mentors, right? You, you want to have somebody that you can look up to who can help guide your careers. How has Shift helped, helped you with that in terms of, should I do this next step? Should I get a PG? Whatever those questions might be. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And funny enough, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I get to learn even more from Chip because he, he comes at it from a geologist perspective and I'm, I'm you know, the, the simple engineer when it comes to geology um but but chip's been you know uh you know like i said thinking thinking through ways of 
taking something that's complicated and, and really can thinking about the complexities, but then boiling it down to something that can be communicated is such a skill. And, and you know, working with Chip, you get to practice that a lot. And uh, you know, in, in kind of a different, um, in a different path, he's also played a big role in um, encouraging me and others to get involved with professional organizations, right? So I've, I've been lucky enough to do a number of presentations and involved with co-chairing events with EBC that Chip was really instrumental in kind of roping me in and, and making the connections and making sure that I showed up to things. And so that's that those things don't happen by accident, especially with like a young professional it it can be hard to feel like you belong in a group and then chip and, and harry too uh kind of welcoming um presence in those sorts of organizations really makes a big difference for uh for young professionals so chip you know where did that come from that 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 willingness and generosity of of spirit that you have to to spend that extra time within your own firm and with outside your firm too just talking to young folks, professionals, encouraging them, you know, giving them advice, that mentorship piece? Well, first of all, I guess I just want to uh, thank both Harry and, and Harrison for uh, for being plugged in with this and, and the kind words. And some things I think have grown a little in stature since over time, but what the heck, I'll, I'll take the credit for it. Um, but uh, I can honestly say I've, I've benefited hugely from uh, you know, mentors throughout my life, um, you know, whether it be, you know, my parents or the younger age, you know, teachers and coaches, um, certainly in college and grad school, there were a couple of professors and advisors that really helped me. Um, some of my first few jobs uh, in, in actually as an exploration, minerals exploration geologist in, in Maine and then out in Colorado. Uh, and then working for Exxon down in Houston for a couple of years. Um, although I didn't stay in those industries, uh, I definitely learned a lot. And, uh, you know, some of those early mentors really helped me out. Uh, and of course, um, when I first started out in the environmental field back in the late 80s, um, the guys that would end up becoming my partners, Paul Sanborn, Charlie Head, and Scott Schillerberg, were all, you know, really important mentors to me. They had all had you know, several years to a decade or more uh, ahead of me, so to speak, in terms of the environmental field. And, uh, um, you know, each one of them contributed in, in, in many different ways to, to uh, you know, helping me sort of uh, catch up and, and, and feel like I was integrated into the environmental profession, you know, not just technically, but also sort of from a, the business side of things, um, you know, the brass tacks, um, you know, whether it be loss prevention, or uh, um, a whole, whole wide range of things. So it's really one of those things where I, I think I just learned so much from others and, and really felt uh, uh, welcomed by others. It just, uh, that was just kind of, uh, you know, the way to do things. And, and frankly, as I got a little older and uh, more years, <laughs> more notches on my belt, so to speak, um, and I became more of a mentor than a mentee. I don't know if mentee is a word, but uh, I, I mean, I think I still got a lot out of being a mentor. Um, certainly Harrison, as an example, um, I learned a lot from him, not just uh, from the technical side of things, but uh, he is uh, particularly fearless when it comes to, you know, 
being willing to give a presentation um, and uh, uh, just just a lot of things, uh, different people I've worked with, including the more uh, so-called junior level folks. I got a lot out of got a lot out of that for sure. So it was a two-way street. Of course, yeah, I totally agree with that. Harry, as somebody who works um, for the regulatory agency, working with a consulting firm like Sanborn Head with somebody like Chip, that relationship there can be both positive or also fraught, in, in, you know, depending on what is going on. And I, I hear a lot that the DES is just a great regulatory agency to work with from the consultant side. But do you have some reflections on what it's like to work with Chip, with his firm, with the consulting firms in general? Well, for half the remediation program staff at DES uh, learned at Sanborn Head, I believe. Um, going back to the foundings of Sanborn Head and then to present, the reputation of Chip and Sanborn Head is that the science rules. So the data are the data, and um, the the information in reports and conclusions is not, um, you know, spun to a client's wishes. And I, I have. Uh, seen that so it, it's all about a scientifically sound conclusion and that that was the case at the beginning and it still is with Sanborn Head and that's a tribute to uh, Chip's leadership uh, and his ability to analyze uh, situations and also uh, Paul Sanborn and Charlie Head who uh, you know from the beginning that was the the theme for the company. Yeah, I, you know, working with Chip, absolutely, you know, like the the science rules today and doing what's right, always important. And that's, I mean, starting, you know, I, I started working here with Chip right out of school. And with that always being the tone set right from the beginning, it, it really helps. And I think it also helps set the the tone for the industry and and I think thankfully we work in an industry that um, that is the tone across the board with a lot of folks and uh, thank goodness that's the case it's something that I think is really important and, and we got to keep on carrying that culture forward. So when it comes to the science ruling we've got kind of an interesting situation these days with emerging contaminants in particular PFAS, PFOA, that whole complex of, of um, contaminants but back, you know, couple, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there was still a focus on contamination, just different contaminants. So Chip, do you have any reflections on the change in how we, how we manage contaminants, how we find them, how we make decisions about them that you've seen change over the years? I, I was thinking about that question quite a bit and, uh, um, you know, try to come up with some sort of general, general thoughts or, or themes on that. And I think uh, a couple of things, you know, with the advent of more and more uh, sophisticated and sensitive analytical methods, you know, we, we're able to, you know, find things, differentiate things, detect things at much lower concentrations and with a much higher level of uh, certainty. I can remember looking at some old reports from like the mid 80s, and they would talk about concentrations of, you know, different uh, contaminants, let's say benzene or trichloroethylene, as like, square centimeters under the peak of the chromatogram. It's like, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, um, but, but really the march to lower and lower reporting on right parts per million to parts per billion. And the case of, uh, of PFAS, we're down to parts per trillion. 
um, maybe going towards parts per quintillion. So really just a quadrillion rather, really getting you know super low. I think that's one thing. Uh, and another thing, I think um, I think way back when you know, the focus was on sort of obvious contaminants, you know, smokestacks and, you know, uh, pipes discharging, you know, multicolored water uh, into streams, uh, you know, drums of solvents. Uh, and now a lot of the contaminants are, uh, are much more, I guess you'd say, subtle or widespread or integrated into our lives. I mean, think about PFAS, you know, the kind of everywhere. Um, microplastics, you know, I mean, it's plastics everywhere. And what we're finding is, right, it sometimes breaks up into these little pieces and can cause a real problem. Um, pharmaceuticals, uh, again, you know, pretty ubiquitous. Uh, apparently, a lot of them pass way th right through wastewater treatment plants, and now they're out there in the environment. So uh, so I think the emerging contaminants now, it, it, it's trickier to deal with. It's not just as simple as, you know, regulating couple of industries or, or banning uh, a chemical that's pretty easy to ban, uh, like banning DDT, you know, 40, 50 years ago. It, it, it's a lot trickier um, and the contaminants are just much more dispersed and, and at much lower concentrations a lot of times. Do you have any reflections on that, Harry, as somebody who's also kind of seen that change? Well, the, I mean, the contaminants have, you know, evolved over time. Um, and I, I agree with Chip's assessment of PFAS back in the uh, the early days of the groundwater contamination assessment and remediation period, it was volatile organic compounds and the gasoline compounds, benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, and methyl tertiary butyl ether, which was really something we didn't focus on much at all, other than as a leading indicator that the other stuff was coming in the groundwater because it moved faster. Uh, and then that became a big issue later on uh, as uh, it became apparent that that was a, a potential public health problem, too. Uh, benzene was the big one originally, and then it, MTBE was added later, even though we knew it was there uh, after uh, the gasoline became unleaded. So, yeah, it, it's evolved over time. Um, the other thing that's evolved is that we went from kind of a free-for-all as far as the regulatory structures to uh, way more defined processes for getting from discovery to investigation and then remediation. Um, and, and that was required to you know, give everybody a regulatory structure to work under, but also to, to just address the sheer volume of sites that existed and still exist. So that didn't exist. Um, and over time, that, that's been added to. And that's never a um, uh, just the regulators um, you know, demanding a process. That there's uh, a lot of discussion with the consultant community and others as these processes are developed. And SHIP was always involved uh, with, uh, with those kinds of broad processes. We couldn't even spell remedial action plan back then, Chip. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Harrison, you've come into this industry you know, more recently and you are working on soil and groundwater investigations. How do you see this emerging contaminants issue affecting the work that you do? Is it driving everything that you do? Is it just you know a side part of what you do? Yeah, I I mean, 
for instance, PFAS have worked their way into a lot of the projects that I'm doing. Some of the projects that never were PFAS projects are now PFAS projects. They just kind of evolved into that. Right. Um, and then there's some projects that wouldn't have been a project unless PFAS hadn't gotten involved. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing a fair amount with emerging contaminants and uh, it's made up a pretty big portion of my career. And it's been a fair amount of some of the I guess as a younger professional, you can kind of get a, a an earlier jump on those sorts of things and invest some time to learn something and get caught up just as much as the older professionals in, in some aspects. It's also some of the same stuff I learned in school apply, you know, the partition coefficients and hydraulics and things like that are just as important for PFAS as they are for benzene or other things, right? Um, I don't know. It's, it's been a really an interesting and challenging piece of my work. Chip, when, when you were talking, I, I'm really curious to hear about, you know, perspectives and, and technical understanding of the capacity for in, for the environment to, to like attenuate, you know, releases and I uh, don't like monitoring natural attenuation is something that's probably been came into um, more of the discussion, but that's also a big part of, you know, Back back in the days, people used to dump it out back because it would just go away after a little while. How how does that have to do with the whole emerging contaminants discussion? Well, good question. But but first, I just want to note that Harrison is probably our our in-house PFAS expert, and certainly has has gone to school on that, and uh, and, and that's well indicated if you look at his uh, list of publications, presentations, and chairs and co-chairships, I'm sure it must be in the dozens, if not scores or hundreds by now. So uh, that, that's just terrific. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons why I think, you know, being a mentor is a two-way street. I've certainly learned a lot uh, from him, you know, not just in terms of the technical side of PFAS, but just the uh, enthusiasm and energy. Sometimes, you know, the old dogs need, uh, you know, someone with some new blood to come in and kind of Kind of perk things up in Harrison has definitely done that. And, and but getting back to his question of PFAS, yeah, it's, I, I guess you know I remember a story that I used to tell my kids when they were very young. There's a cat in a hat story, and then they had some sort of red dye or red stain of some sort. And, and the whole objective, the whole story plot was they're trying to clean up that red spot. And and by the end of the book, the whole world was like a light pink. And I think that's kind of where we're at with some of these contaminants like PFAS. You know, they're, they're just so dispersed at such low levels and appear to be kind of hard to concentrate. And once concentrated, they're, they're relatively, there are ways to destroy them. But when they're out there at such low levels, um, the question really becomes, you know, are having those low levels in the environment, you know, pretty ubiquitously, are they really a, a health hazard? Are they an environmental hazard? And, uh, you know, one thing, again, talking about PFAS, it's true is we all have much less PFAS in our blood, well, most of us anyways, than, than the populace did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And so I guess that means it's getting better. It doesn't mean it's not a problem, but I think it's, it's one of those things, you know, we've uh, produced so many uh, uh, synthetic chemicals. Um, some of them, you know, by design were toxic pesticides as an example. Um, others weren't, like PFAS, and others we thought were just completely benign, like you know, plastics. 
uh, and yet, uh, you know, they're out there. And uh, I guess that's part of the reason we're all doing this work that we do. And, you know, it's kind of a grand experiment, all those chemicals that we put in the environment and, and just to see uh, you know, what, what the long-term impacts are. When it comes to some of the remediation techniques that we use today, how is that different from uh, what we were using, you know, 10, 20 years ago to remediate some of these contaminants? Either Chip or Harry can answer. I'll, I'll give it a shot, I guess. I mean, in my experience, a couple of things. If anyone recalls back in the 80s and early 90s, pretty much every other gas station had a huge pile of dirt sitting there. And uh, I think at that point, New Hampshire had a petroleum cleanup level of 100 ppm. It was really low. And um, that was part of the reason there were these huge piles everywhere. But of course, people would dig it up and be, okay, you know, like now what do we do? You know, bring it to landfills was expensive. In some cases, you know, landfills didn't want it. Uh, and, and around the same time, I'm guessing it was probably the 80s, early 90s, this whole sort of concept of, of risk-based cleanup, you know, became a little more, uh, I guess, technically based, quantitatively based. And, you know, previously, you know, cleanup levels like the 100 ppm of petroleum hydrocarbons, I'm not sure what that was based on. Someone said, well, one part per million is too low, millions way too high. Yeah, let's pick 100, you know, sounds good. And uh, so I think over time, you know, really trying to quantify risk and, and, and realize that, you know, we could spend an awful lot of money cleaning up all this dirt. But if the dirt right beside it is almost as contaminated, or, or will be contaminated in the future, and it's not really harming anything or anyone, then um, you know, maybe it's okay to leave some things in place. And, and this sort of uh, you know, evolution or development of monitored natural attenuation you know, clearly you know, sort of came out of that uh, recognition. And now I think it's, it, it's trickier because we did have contaminants like petroleum that really did degrade in the environment, right? They really did get degraded by bacteria or other processes. But now we have contaminants, um, PFAS is probably the best example, that really don't degrade. They just, they just dilute, disperse, but they're still there. And so uh, you know, the question is, we brought a lot of new environmental uh, remedial technologies to bear. Again, PFAS might be an example compound, but some of those technologies can be super expensive. And the question is, is it really, is it really a you know, worthwhile expenditure? And, uh, you know, the issue of PFAS, right? We don't want to put them in landfills because they end up in a leachate. The leachate goes to wastewater treatment plants. The wastewater treatment plants discharge water to surface water and send their sludge back to the landfills. And uh, you know, there's been some people trying to incinerate PFAS, but then nobody wants even a test burn in their area because they're worried about it getting in the air. So it is this kind of a, a conundrum, you know, certainly. Remedial technologies have advanced tremendously in the last, you know, couple of decades. But uh, you know, there's still some fundamental issues with them, cost being one, people not necessarily wanting some of those technologies used in their in their neighborhood or their backyard, NIMBY, the NIMBY sort of concern. And uh, um, and no one likes landfills, but that seems to be where a lot of stuff ends up. So um yeah, there's just some basic uh, uh, issues with producing these contaminants. And uh, you know, one thing to do is go back to the beginning and just not produce as many. To some extent, there's a, there's a push on the drinking water side to be doing some of the treatment too, right? There's 
you know, with with a contaminant that's more dispersed and harder to actually clean up at the release site, then you're stuck treating it at people's homes or at drinking water treatment plant, right? Yeah, and I mean, and that makes sense if you think about it. Maybe that's one of the oldest technologies around. If we go back to like pathogens in in drinking water, right? We didn't try to kill all the pathogens in the world. We just tried to make sure people don't drink water with with those in them, and that you know is probably one of the more effective approaches to uh, sort of preserving human health, but uh, but but not going broke trying to you know clean up the whole planet uh, for things that are at super low concentrations that would be very difficult to do. If you if you go back, the the concept of a groundwater management zone, which came out of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, I think to a large degree, uh, was critical to sort of prioritizing sites because we had so many particularly gasoline. Uh, leaking underground storage tank sites, but others, and the idea of articulating where the um, where, where the contamination is, but not having to chase every molecule because if we could, you know, use the whole gross domestic uh, product uh, of the country cleaning up molecules that didn't make any sense to clean up if nobody was drinking the water, for example, or if there weren't ten feet of gasoline sitting on the groundwater, which we added one town that I think Chip worked on. Um, and so that was not a good thing either. But <laughs> so the idea of a groundwater management zone and these other uh, fairly creative regulatory processes that Sanborn had and others contributed to and then did the assessments for uh, were very important in terms of getting the, the whole cleanup industry, if you will, focused on the right sites. I mean, it just sounds like the right science is, is the thing that we need to have here, right? We need to be getting down to that science-based recommendation with, you know, the research behind it, with the, the field work behind it to make some of these decisions. Would you agree with that, Chip? No, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, and, and some of it, and again, I'll use PFAS as an example, are really kind of pushing the limits of, of knowledge in terms of things like toxicology. And, uh, you know, we see these incrementally lower and lower uh, cleanup levels proposed, right? I think initially EPA had a, a 400 parts per trillion number for uh, a combination of two or more PFAS, and then it was 70. And then New Hampshire came out with with MCLs, which were quite low. You know, some would say radically low. And then EPA came out with their proposed MCLs, which are lower still, and and their risk-based numbers are like a factor of a thousand or so, maybe a hundred or a thousand lower than those numbers. And I'm not a toxicologist, so that's where things get a little tricky, you know, interpreting this data that's out there and, and what it really means and, and what the implications are. It can, uh, you know, really drive to the point where we really have to say, okay, yeah, let, let's, let's limit exposure uh, as best we can because uh, the numbers are just, I mean, they're below numbers we can even detect and probably ever will be able to detect. Ooh, be careful what you say, Chip. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's the thing. Those analytical chemists keep coming up with better machines that go to lower numbers. They do. So, they do. I mean, what you just, catch up with them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what you just mentioned is really important. So once you have the data, once you have the numbers, you do need to interpret them. You do need to make decisions based on those numbers. And I think that's a huge part of the regulatory environment from Harry, you know, working at DES for so long, the regulatory environment. Uh, culture needs to make a decision there too based on the numbers that they see um how do you feel you know how over time has that changed harry in terms of how 
the regulatory community sees that? Well, first, in, in terms of how one establishes uh, regulations, uh, I, I heard an expression probably 30 or 40 years ago when the when the decibels are the same in both ears, you've just about got it right. So that's how standards are really set. <laughs> uh, and, and the numbers have continued to go down with time, um, not just, uh, you know, as chemicals have been discovered in the environment. And also, you know, I, well, the, the best example, I think, is arsenic, which when I started, arsenic was 50 and then it was 10 and now it's two. Is that right? Or five. And yeah, in, in, in any event, five. arsenic at five, as um, the uh, the science and the epidemiological studies have uh, evolved, it's been clear that arsenic needed to be more stringent and for good reason because of the effects on children. So, you know, there's an evolution with time with all the standards. How do you see that play out in your work, Harrison, this, 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 the standards changing over time and, and you having to react to it? So it, it definitely makes it harder to, to know what's going to be happening in the future. And that's what our clients often want to know is what, what, we, what should we do now to prepare for the future? And um, that can be really hard to answer. And there's a lot of regulatory change around um, PFAS in particular and a lot of uncertainty with not just drinking water, but and, and groundwater, but you know, with soils and things like that, and it, it it's a challenge to to know where things are headed, and um, so so yeah, it it just makes the hard the job a lot harder when things are subject to change, and especially when you know that they're gonna change. Um, if you don't know that change is coming, that that's kind of easy to deal with. You don't deal with it, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, and, and for, you know, the relative risk piece here is a little, it, it's tough to deal with as a professional that kind of knows the the risk is there, you know, especially with things like arsenic and radon. Um, and it's hard to even put it into action in your own life. Have, having, having you know, the levels of five, five and you for arsenic in your drinking water is, is problematic and that's that's something that you know people have more appetite for because it's naturally occurring versus something that someone else put into your water right so that that's something that i have to kind of reconcile with in, in the work and feel you know all right we're doing the best we can with the rules we've got here and uh you know we want to do what's technically right and and also what's meeting the rule so as sort of a closing out question, I'll ask Harrison to start. What's been keeping you in this industry? What's keeping you working on, you know, environment in, in environmental consulting? A lot of the reason that I'm excited to come into work and and do what I'm doing every day is our work is making a difference and, and we're helping people, we're helping the environment, we're helping our clients. And um I, I think by doing good work, we're we're really moving things forward, getting things done, and and it's really exciting to to be a part of the the system that gets so much work done, affects a lot of folks' lives and the environment, and in a lot of important ways. And if we do our job really good, then people don't even know we do it. So that's what I'm excited about every day. That's great. And Harry, what what's kept you going? Well, you know, I'm old and shit. <laughs> And I, I uh, graduated from college in 1975 and 
went to work for EPA. And so since then, you know, rivers have become way more clean because of all the wastewater treatment plants that have uh, been put in place and the more stringent standards that have evolved over time, forcing, you know, even better treatment. Drinking water is safer. Uh, we had in New Hampshire, when I came to New Hampshire, there were 50 to 70 unfiltered drinking water supplies. Uh, so the risk of things like geodiasis was uh, profound. And those have all been addressed. And a lot of groundwater contamination has uh, been discovered and cleaned up. So, you know, pretty much across the board, when you look at it over that long uh, career, there's been tremendous improvement in our environment um, caused by people like Chip working just day to day, you know, grunting it out every day on one project after the other. Chip, you're the last to answer. What kept you going for so long? Well, I can... I can sort of chime in both what uh, Harry and Harrison said, but, uh, you know, it really is people in the environmental field, environmental professionals, and in particular, environmental regulators like Harry was for so long that uh, uh, made the difference. And I can remember as a little kid, I visited New York with my parents in like 1968, I think. And I can remember driving into it saying, like, we're going there because you couldn't even see the tops of the skyscrapers. And... Uh, I remember we all kind of got sore throats and were kind of sick just just from breathing, and uh, um, and it's just you know one anecdote, but certainly you hear stories about the Merrimack River flowing different colors depending upon what the mills were doing, all sorts of other interesting things floating down the river because you know wastewater is discharged pretty much untreated, contaminated sites we heard about like uh, you know civil actions and. Uh, things of that nature, you know, right in our neighborhood in the Boston area and in southern New Hampshire had some pretty, uh, some pretty significant uh, Superfund sites early on. And I think we, we as an industry, and again, regulators in particular, really have, uh, you know, have done a lot to clean up the environment. Uh, you know, New Hampshire maybe was kind of lucky because we never were that contaminated to begin with. But I spent a couple of years in Houston and uh, um, in, in the midst of the petrochemical and petroleum industries. And um, uh, you can see where there weren't people, you know, minding the store, so to speak, if there weren't environmental uh, professionals such as ourselves there, regulators there, just how contaminated things could get because, you know, some parts of this country they were and some parts of the world they still are. And the second aspect, I guess, is those major sort of cleanups seem to occur, uh, frankly, having uh, new folks come in, again, folks like Harrison and and that sort of next generation of professionals uh, definitely helps sort of keep me uh, fresh and enthusiastic and, uh, you know, just a boatload of new ideas and new energy. Well, that's great. Thank you all for um, joining today. And thanks for highlighting all the work that Chip's done over time and the work that you, Harry and Harrison have done as well in the industry. It's been great to chat with you all. And uh, congrats again to Chip on, on winning the award. Really, really exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you all for your time. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Chip, Harrison, and Harry. Reflecting on the careers of folks like Chip is not just about reminiscing about times past. It's really a way to talk about what was really positive about a particular leadership style and maybe inform how you work with those around you and your firm. You know, taking cues from Chip, that would be making sure you're an active mentor of others around you to help move their careers forward because it will help you move your career forward. So taking those little tidbits of information and success from folks like Chip is really important, I think, 
And it's nice to reflect on that. You'll find links from the, today's discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. This is a brand new little podcast. So please like, rate, leave a comment on whatever platform you're on. Myself and my staff, we're going to read them all. We want to take those to heart as we put on more episodes. Certainly leave us comments, especially if you want to hear from certain types of speakers or on certain topics. And join me next week for our final episode in the EB series. I'll be highlighting the work of the Narragansett Bay Commission. They have a net zero energy program in which they're using a diverse array of energy efficiency programs, renewable energy installations, and they're really investing in unique ways to make their organization um, net zero. Thanks very much. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sakar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.